Hello, thank you for tuning in today. I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Brenda Davey about what we drink and why it matters. We'll explore how to stay hydrated, how liquids and solids impact our bodies differently, and what this can mean for weight management. As you might expect, we'll be talking a lot about my good friend, H2O. Dr. Davey is a professor in the Department of Human Nutrition, Foods, and Exercise at Virginia Tech, where she directs the Laboratory for Eating Behaviors and Weight Management. She holds a PhD in nutrition and is also trained as a registered dietitian. Dr. Davey has been actively researching, teaching, and publishing in this field for over 20 years. Before we dig in, I want to note that there's lots of controversy around the topic of intentional weight loss and when, if ever, this is a healthy goal to pursue. We don't get into diet, culture, and weight stigma today, but I've discussed these topics in the past with Dr. Gabrielle Fandaro and Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford, and I encourage you to check out those conversations. Our conversation takes a few random turns, including a detour into the topic of water fluoridation. After we spoke, I read up on this topic and learned that Canada and the U.S. have very different approaches when it comes to adding fluoride to drinking water. Across the United States, community water has fluoride added in order to protect our teeth. In Canada, fluoridation is much less consistent. Some areas have it and others don't. Here in BC, only 2% of people have drinking water with optimal fluoride levels for dental health. I'll put some links in the show notes to learn more about this important topic. Without further ado, let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome to the show, Dr. Davey. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So let's get started with a bit about you. Can you tell me about your education and training and how you came to have a special interest in today's topics, which is beverages? Sure. So I'm a registered dietitian. So I started out my career as a practitioner and I worked as a clinical dietitian for a while and then pursued graduate degrees in exercise physiology and then a PhD in human nutrition later on. And then I was fortunate to begin working with some folks in the weight management area. My dissertation work was focused more on cardiovascular disease risk, but I began to get really interested in weight management research, obesity prevention and treatment. And that's still a major component of my research program these days. I'm also really interested in dietary assessment methodologies. So how do we evaluate what folks are eating? And then as part of my interest in weight management, about 15 years ago, I started getting very interested in beverage consumption and how that relates to weight management. And that led to some research that we pursued related to water intake and weight control. Thanks. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting career path. It always takes a bit of a winding path, doesn't it? From where it you started to where you went. It was a winding up. path. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've often thought that beverages don't get as much attention as they deserve because they can really be a significant part of your diet. And we talk so much about healthy eating, but we don't talk nearly as much about healthy drinking. In fact, I feel like it's really easy to just completely forget about what you drink when you're thinking about, you know, what did I eat today? What does my overall dietary pattern look like? Right. So that is true. Beverages are one of those forgotten foods, as we say in the dietary assessment methodology area. Um, folks 
tend to forget those, um, whereas they are more likely to remember the meals that they have. And also, interestingly, it's only been in recent years where water consumption was added to some of our national nutrition surveillance. So because there were no calories in water for a long time, um, those surveys didn't include questions about water intake. And then that changed um, not maybe 10, 15 years ago. So now we are collecting that information. Okay. How has water consumption changed over the last decade or so? So it has increased. So thinking back to 10 or 15 years ago, products like seltzer waters and bubbly waters, you know, it was really Perrier and maybe one or two other companies. And now you go into the grocery store and whole aisles are now devoted to those types of products. So those have become really popular. And that's probably a good thing if folks are using those as a replacement for sugary beverages. Right. So let's talk a little bit about why the form of the food matters. So how does a sugary sweetened beverage, for example, differ from that same amount of sugar in a solid food? Right. So that's a really important issue. And that that is why beverages are particularly important in terms of weight management. What we know is that caloric beverages do not have the same satiating power that solid foods do. And so, so it's not only sugary beverages, but it also could be milk or juice. Those calories are not sensed as well with our appetite regulation systems. And so when we have beverages either right before or with a meal, if they're calorie containing beverages, those are additive to the calories that we eat from the food. And so by choosing water or a non-caloric beverage, that is a way to reduce the total number of calories consumed at that meal. So since I, I love to shed a light on how these things are tested and how scientists make these conclusions, so what would be an example of a study that would demonstrate how the same number of calories would have a different impact on satiety and on calorie intake, but depending on form. These studies were done in Barbara Roll's lab years ago, and they're typically done in a crossover fashion. And so you expose folks to several different meal conditions. And so in one condition, they might get a glass of water with a meal. In another condition, they might get a diet drink with a meal or an artificially sweetened drink. And in other conditions, they might get some caloric beverage like milk or juice or a, a sugar-sweetened beverage. And then you ask folks to consume as much as they would like to from a test meal, an ad libitum test meal. And then you measure the amount of calories they consume and also the calories from that beverage. And so that's how they can determine what happens when you just have that meal with water versus that meal with a calorie-containing beverage, that those beverage calories are additive to the calories in the foods. Do you know how much of that is psychological in that you're sort of thinking, well, kind of taking stock in some way mentally of what you're eating and you just don't mentally count the drinks versus, you know, are there hormones you're measuring internally that sort of correspond and support that mechanism? There probably are some internal mechanisms that are coming into play. We don't 
tend to sense those beverage calories. So it seems to be something physiological. Sometimes when they do these studies, they blind folks to the conditions. So they might not know whether or not they're consuming a regular soda or a diet drink. And so, so you can sort of tease out some of those relationships, whether it's something that is folks are consciously controlling versus something happening physiologically. Right. So maybe in theory, chewing is triggering some response in you that's contributing to this brain signals of fullness, that kind of thing? or That's probably part of it. But if you also think about how quickly we can consume liquid calories, you're not having to to chew and to swallow. So they're very rapidly consumed compared to foods that have more texture that you have to chew up. So so it may be the, the speed at which they're delivered that's also coming into play here. So I want to t- take a step back and start to integrate this. We've talked a little bit about these controlled experiments where the form of the food impacts how much total energy you take in. And so taking a step back, Does this translate in real life to extra pounds from extra calories and what sorts of studies have addressed that? Right. So I have two thoughts there. So the first is that we know also from studies that Barbara Rolls did in in her laboratory that energy density is a pretty important factor that determines how many calories we eat. And it appears that it's actually the weight of food in our stomach that's really important in helping us to feel full and helping us to stop eating. And so very low calorie, high moisture foods are very satiating compared to foods that are very light but very calorically dense. So think about eating a big salad with lots of um, raw vegetables, carrots and cucumbers and lettuce, and how heavy that would be because of the moisture content and also the fiber content of that salad versus something like some popcorn or some pretzels that are pretty light in weight. And you would have to eat a whole lot of those to have that same sensation of food weight in your stomach. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So so energy density is part of it. And so moisture in foods tends to be particularly helpful in terms of controlling hunger and appetite. But then we've also done some work related to water consumption before a meal among folks who are who are trying to lose weight. Um, and we were interested in this idea of pre-meal water as an appetite control strategy. And so we have some data from studies in middle-aged and older adults that that may in fact be a helpful strategy for helping folks reduce their calorie intake when they are trying to lose weight. How big of an effect size are, are you talking about? So when we tested this idea at an acute meal setting. So we brought folks into our lab, we gave them a tray of food, and then we brought them in another time and we gave them two cups of water. And then 15 or 20 minutes later, we gave them the tray of food. We found that they ate between 75 and 90 calories less at the ad-lib meal when they were given that pre-meal water. Now, these were just middle-aged and older adults that we observed this in. We did not find this effect in younger people. So the magnitude of calorie reduction, uh, that could be pretty important if you have that 
effect sustained over time. So after we made those observations with the acute meal studies, we then carried out a 12-week weight loss study among folks with overweight and obesity. And we asked them to consume two cups of water prior to each main meal, three times a day. And we instructed them in a a, a nutritious calorie-reduced diet. And then we had another group that we instructed in the diet, but we didn't give them any instructions about water consumption. And what we found over 12 weeks is that the folks in the water group actually lost about two kilograms more than the group who was not losing water. So that was significant. And then we followed those folks for an additional year and found that the water group also was successful with keeping that weight off for a year by using that same water consumption strategy. So we're trying to get funding to pursue some larger scale studies. This was about 48 individuals in these original studies. So definitely more work to do. I mean, one thing that I've seen as a common characteristic across weight loss studies is there's so much inter-individual variation. Can you comment on that and how some people it might be more effective than others and any theories about why it's more effective in different populations? So what we were able to determine is that we did not observe this appetite-reducing effect of water in younger people. And so it was just in this middle-aged and older adult group that we found this hunger-suppressing effect. We did studies where we compared young and older individuals to figure that out. And what we think may be happening there is that as folks age, gastric emptying rates also decline. And so we felt like the pre-meal water strategy might have been effective for middle-aged and older adults because of this delayed gastric emptying. And then digging even deeper, so within older adults, there's presumably some people for which it seemed to make a big impact and others less so. Do you have any any sense of whether it's uh, any factors that might shape one individual's response to that? Our study was relatively small, so it's hard to tease out subgroups where it might be particularly effective and some versus others. We did compare males and females, and it was similarly effective in both of those groups. So that's really the only individual factor that I can say we I have evidence to support a benefit in for both males and females. Do you have a sense of what proportion of adults in general consume what's considered an appropriate amount of water? So we have information using NHANES national surveillance data on total water intake, but that includes water and beverages and also water and foods. And if you look at total water intake in the U.S. population, it looks like both men and women do pretty well in terms of meeting the adequate intake recommendations for total fluids, with the exception of older adults. And so for folks over age 60, they are less likely to meet water intake recommendations than the younger folks. I've heard, I think it was a discussion on other podcasts that this idea that your water intake has to be only water is not accurate. So can you speak to that? Right, right. So you can get water from lots of different foods. And so I gave the example earlier of the salad where you might have lots of water in your lettuce and your cucumbers and your celery, et cetera. In general, we get about 
80% of our total fluid intake from fluids. So foods only contribute about 20% to our total fluid intake. It's mostly beverages. But a lot of different beverages do go into that 80% contribution of, of total fluids. Drinking water is the primary one, though. And that's followed by coffee and tea and sugary beverages. Okay. Do you have any thoughts on this? Sometimes the more is better gets a bit extreme in water and you see people walking around with, you know, a gallon of water. So any thoughts on the more is better philosophy on water? Yeah, that is an important point because sometimes things do get taken to extremes and water intoxication is possible. That is something that's real and it could have some very severe consequences. And so there have been instances where folks may be training for competing in a marathon and they're really forcing fluids and that can have some really serious adverse health effects. And so, so that type of thing could be avoided. Certainly drinking when you're thirsty is a good strategy, but our thirst mechanism Mechanisms are not perfect. And so it's possible to be slightly dehydrated when you're just relying on thirst as a mechanism to guide your drinking behavior. But it's, it's a reasonable enough approach for most of the time. For folks who are interested in tracking their water consumption and monitoring their water consumption to, tr- to determine whether or not they're meeting recommendations, which would be nine to 13 cups a day for females and males, respectively, based upon our our DRIs. There are some very cool, smart water bottles out there on the market, as well as apps that track water intake. So it's something that folks can monitor themselves if they're interested in doing that. Another recommendation is that in populations like athletes, monitoring urine color is a pretty good strategy for, for tracking your hydration status. And so there are urine color charts that you can find on the, on the internet and keeping urine in the light lemonade straw color range is, is a recommendation that's really common in some settings, particularly among athletic populations. So those are just a few recommendations. I definitely always look after how's my color. So I like that one a lot. What are some general recommendations on beverage intake in terms of, I want to get healthier, how can I clean up my beverage intake? And if you're looking at a beverage section of a store, how do you go about assessing the healthiness of a beverage? So for folks who are concerned about weight management, a recommendation would be to try and limit calorie-containing beverages as much as possible. I would recommend water as the beverage of choice versus other types of beverages, but certainly things like coffee and tea that don't have added sugar, herbal teas without added sugar, those are also good options. Other things that I would recommend, there is an issue that I think is important. Some folks don't like the way their water tastes. And so if folks are challenged by that, there are a couple of things that could be considered. Getting a filter, a home water filter is an option. And also using things like lemon slices or cucumber slices added to cold or hot water can be ways to overcome some of the taste issues. Yeah, I love the fruit infusions. I always do that in the summer with mint and strawberry and cucumber. Yeah, I haven't done that in a while. One thing I wanted to drill into a little bit is the alternative waters that you alluded to earlier. So the soda stream, which I have, and these sort of zero calorie yet flavored water. So what are your thoughts on the health impacts of those or or any impacts compared to just regular tap water? 
I certainly think it's a great alternative to other forms of beverages like soft drinks. So as a replacement, beverage replacement strategy, I think it's a great option for folks. For children where fluoride may be an issue, um, you're not going to get that from bottled waters or the seltzer waters. And so that's something to be aware of um, for parents, they, that fluoride is, is something that you can get from tap water that might be important for children's dental health. But I think those are great alternatives for folks looking to have a convenient form of fluid that might add some, have some taste benefits as well. The little research I did on this suggested the pH could be not a great thing for your mouth if it's sort of continual. I actually read maybe to have some regular water afterwards or just be conscious of that. I'm not really familiar with that research. So yeah, so I'm not sure. I think probably with moderate consumption levels, it's probably okay is what I would guess. Yeah. I think everything in moderation is always a good rule of thumb. I agree with you. I'm curious to get your thoughts on juice, because as I'm sure you know, there's some controversy about where it sits on the healthiness continuum. And there are some people who argue it's should be lumped together with sugar, sweetened beverages and sodas. And there are others who argue that it's a healthy, nutritious choice. And so where do you see juice fitting in, particularly from a weight management perspective? Juices can be an important source of some nutrients for folks. You know, you think about orange juice being rich in vitamin C and potassium. And so for individuals for whom weight control is not a major issue, it can be a good source of some nutrients. For folks like athletes who have very high calorie needs, it may be very difficult for them to consume enough calories to keep weight on. And so liquid calories from healthy beverages like juices can be useful for those folks. I have two very active boys and keeping weight on them can be a challenge. And so I do buy 100% orange juice and provide that for them, which is a good source of, of nutrients for them. For folks who are concerned about weight control, though, I would say, again, it, it is a calorie-containing beverage, even though it's, it's not an added sugar-containing beverage. So I would say that's best minimized. And can you comment at all on smoothies? Because those are so popular. And in some cases, they're a meal replacement. And in other cases, they seem to be a meal addition. Yeah, I think there can be very good nutrients in those as well. And some might even have extra fiber depending upon what they're putting in the smoothies. So it can be a nutritious source of calories, but it can be a lot of calories. And so I think just having having an awareness of if you do enjoy smoothies and you're a busy on the go person and you need something nutritious that you can, that's portable, It might be a good option, but maybe just be aware of what's in that and the calorie content so that it doesn't create problems. Yeah, that makes sense. I think like we talked about earlier, your body may not, the actual amount of satiety per calorie, sort of fullness per calorie might not be as high as the solid food version, right? Exactly, exactly. So what do you do in terms of implementing your research in your own life? 
I lived in Colorado for 10 years. And so at altitude, you're prone to dehydration. And so you really do have to concentrate on pushing fluids if you're an active person. And so I really got into the habit, I think, from our years in Colorado. And and I'm an active person. I like to be outside and, and run and those sorts of things. So I am a big fan of water. I also really like herbal teas and green tea and coffee. And there's maybe some health benefits associated with those as well. So those are all things that I consume on a daily basis. I have a an electric teapot in my office, so I can always make herbal tea throughout the day. Those are some of the things that I do. So what are some of the ongoing questions and upcoming research that you're most excited about addressing both yourself and in the field? The two things that I'm particularly interested in right now are are really continuing this line of water and health research focused on middle-aged and older adults and water consumption and weight control. We do gain weight with advancing age. And so overweight and obesity prevalence are very, very high among older adults. So this is a population that I really like to work with. They're also prone to dehydration because of their older age. And so so I'm really excited about trying to pursue larger scale studies in that area. The other thing that I'm particularly interested in right now is ultra processed foods. That's been a really hot topic in the nutrition field. And it relates to food intake, to weight management, to disease risk. And so doing some experimental studies related to ultra-processed food consumption and eating behaviors is something that I'm also really interested in. As you know, I had a conversation about that with Deirdre Tobias. I do. I really enjoyed that podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate that. So anyone out there who hasn't heard it, I highly recommend tuning into that conversation. So any closing tips for those who just want to do what they can to improve their health or weight management with beverages? I think the recommendations that I had earlier, just being aware of the beverages that you're consuming. If weight management is a concern, then trying to focus on non-caloric beverages and trying some of these new technologies. If you're someone that is excited about tech, like apps and smart water bottles, those are potentially effective ways to help you reach your fluid intake goals and maybe weight goals too. Yeah, I'm certainly someone who responds well to having metrics and goals and kind of those little gold stars. So you got to find what works for you, right? And finally, just any specific resources you would recommend both for finding more about your research online or just in general about whether it's a professional group in your field that you think is a good source of information rather than misinformation. Because this is a field, as you know, where their misinformation is rampant. Absolutely. Um, so the CDC has a lot of really great information on water and beverage consumption on their site. And so that's one, I think, really great resource. There are some states that have statewide campaigns to promote healthy beverage consumption. And Virginia, the state I'm in, is one of them. They have a campaign called Rev Your Bev. And so they have some nice materials available through the Virginia Department of Health Rev Your Bev campaign. That's another one. So those are, I think, two nice resources that folks can tap into if they want reputable information on beverage and health. The other issue which is related, if folks are concerned about their local water quality, and if that might represent a barrier to them consuming more water, then looking at 
those reports that you get once a year that may be a little confusing, but they do tell you about your local water quality. And those are, there's a requirement through the EPA that those, they're called consumer confidence reports. Those are sent out annually by water utilities. So if you're on a public water system, you can access that information and learn more about how your water quality is. I remember looking this up now that you mentioned it for swimming water here in, I'm in Vancouver, Canada. So it's obviously a little different. And that's a good point. I think they actually might have had some other quality control metrics reported. So I don't know the best way to just try Googling, I guess, your municipality and see what you can find there. Right. Many of them do post those consumer confidence reports online as well. So if you don't receive something in the mail once a year, they should have that information available to you online as well. Yeah. And do you recommend using water filters at all since we're talking about this? Aesthetic are an issue for some folks. They may be particularly sensitive to the chlorine in their water, or maybe there are minerals in the water like sulfur that give it a dirty sock smell or something that might be unappealing. And so the filters can be helpful in those kinds of situations to help remove some of those. They may also remove things like fluoride that you may want. So I would just say they're an option for folks if there's something about the water that makes them unappealing to them. It's worth trying a filter, just being aware of what it might be also taking out of your water. Yeah. My understanding is that fluoride levels vary a lot regionally. And I think my mom grew up in Michigan and I believe they fortified the water with fluoride and and her dentist gave her kudos for, for the benefits of that over the years. But I wonder if it's something where you don't want to rely on your regional water and you want to supplement anyways? So we have fluoridated water in the U.S., although I will tell you there is some controversy there. Um, So some folks have an issue with that, but it is extremely helpful for children in terms of reducing dental caries. And so folks who are on wells, they actually do need to have fluoride supplementation for their children so that they don't have a problem related to that. Oh, so all of the U.S. is fortified now. I didn't realize that. And I wonder what it is in Canada if it is as well. I'll have to look into it. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been a fascinating discussion. I really appreciate your taking the time. Sure. Thank you for having me. Take care. 